0: Today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 22, verse 30 through chapter 23, verse 22. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God and all good conscience up to this day. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly."
1: Gary Haugen, CEO of International Justice Mission, which is a Christian organization that fights sex trafficking around the world, writes this. After we have poured into our children all the good food and shelter and clothing, after we have provided them with great education, discipline, structure, and love, after we have worked so hard to provide every good thing, they turn to us and ask, why have you given all of this to me? And the honest answer for me is, so you'll be safe. And my kid looks up at me and says, really? That's it? You want me to be safe? Your grand ambition for my life is that nothing bad happens and I think something inside them dies. They either go away to perish in safety or they go away looking for adventure in the wrong places. Jesus, on the other hand, affirms their sense of adventure and their yearning for larger glory. Courage. Courage. It is what Jesus commands Paul in the center of this passage in verse 11. He stands next to Paul and says, Paul, take courage. But where does courage come from? Where does courage come from? First, we're gonna see that courage comes from the power of the resurrected Christ. How does Paul arrive in this heated argument with the Jewish ruling council? Well, in Acts 22, he shares his conversion story. He shares his testimony, and on the heels of sharing his story, the Jews want to kill him. So the Roman tribune, or who was the commander, stepped in and rescued Paul, brought him into custody, and then was planning to flog Paul so that the truth would come out of him. End of chapter 22, Paul tells him, I'm a Roman citizen. And so the commander, of the tribune, reverses the order of the flogging, because that would have been illegal to do that to a Roman citizen. But then the Roman commander decides to bring Paul, bring the Jewish council together to find out what is really going on here. What is Paul being accused of? And then this is what sets up this heated argument, this heated exchange between Paul and the high priest Ananias, beginning of chapter 23. Verse one, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Verse two, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul responds by calling the high priest a whitewashed wall, basically calling out his hypocrisy. The crowds then call Paul out for insulting the high priest. At which point, by the way, Paul hadn't been in Jerusalem in five years. He had been disconnected from Jerusalem and the leadership. So that's why he probably didn't recognize Ananias as the high priest. But the crowd calls him out for insulting the high priest. Paul acknowledges it, acknowledges he was wrong. Quotes from Exodus 22, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, all this to say, Paul realized at this point he was not gonna get a fair trial. That was abundantly clear. And so he moves to the very source of what this tension is all about. He goes right to the source of the friction, the tension, the disagreement. Verses six to seven. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Now the question is why? Why does Paul's statement about the resurrection bring such division And such dissension into this room, which we will see, will escalate into violence. Well, in the the first century, the Jewish world was fractured into factions, groups of people. The, The land that God had promised then, the promised land, was owned and ruled and controlled by Rome. And every Jew felt this felt the tension of it. It was wrong. They longed to be free. And so they all agreed that Roman occupation was a bad thing. They all agreed on that. But they disagreed on how to fix the problem. They disagreed on how the Romans would be overthrown and how the kingdom of God would be ushered in. No different than our day today. Everyone agrees that this world is broken. That it's not the way it should be. But people have all kinds of opinions on how it should be fixed. So this is no different, 2,000 years later. Now, what were the Jewish factions or the Jewish parties that had different ideas on how the kingdom of God would be ushered in and how the Romans would be overthrown? Well, first, you had the Sadducees. Verse eight, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. The Sadducees denied the doctrine of the resurrection. They rejected the belief in a spirit world of angels and demons. They had sold out theologically and collaborated with the Roman rulers of the day for political and financial benefit. Now you say, what would Sadducees look like today? Maybe politicians that would use the church, that would use Christians, that would use language of scripture to achieve power. Maybe those who would agree and help them and believe that if we just get the right person in the right place, God will heal our land and believe the kingdom of God can be spread through politics or networking or right legislation or right policies or right strategies. If all that can just come in place, the kingdom of God will flourish. Those were the Sadducees. Next, you had the Pharisees, verse 8. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Now, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Now, the key here is they believed in a general resurrection at the end of time. They had no place in their airtight doctrine for someone raising from the dead in the middle of history. That's why they hated Jesus and disagreed and didn't receive him. So resurrection, yes, but that's at the end of time. They believed in the spirit world, angels, and demons. They believed that airtight doctrine, adherence to the scriptures, and meticulous morality would usher in the kingdom of God and make things right. That was the Pharisees. What would the Pharisees look like today? People who are desperately trying to please God through their stuff, their actions, their merits, who believe that if we can just return to conservative values and good moral living, that God will heal our land, that things will be made right. That was the Pharisees. Then you had the zealots. Now, their name doesn't appear in this passage, but the 40 Jews who plotted to assassinate Paul in verses 12 to 13 were Jewish zealots. Verses 12 to 13 the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. They were determined. They were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So they went to the Jewish ruling council, chief priests and the elders, and they said, hey, we've got an idea. We can help you out. What if you go to the Roman tribune, the commander, and request that Paul be brought back for further inquiry, further questioning, to make sure we get this case right, and then on his way back, we're gonna ambush him and assassinate him. We're gonna kill him. That was their plan. The the zealots kept taking up arms. They they believed that the kingdom of God would be ushered in by the power of the sword. Now, what would zealots look like today? Maybe extremists? Conspiracy theory? We're going to take matters into our own hands, and we're going to get things right, even if it means murder and violence. That would be what zealots would be like. Now, here's the question. What's the common ground between all of these factions? They look very different on the surface. In the first century, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Zealots looked very different. But what's the common ground between them? It's control and power. They all agreed that it wasn't good that the Jews were under Roman occupation. They all agreed that the promised land and their lives needed to be freed and the kingdom of God needed to be ushered in and things needed to be made right. They agreed that things were wrong. They even agreed that the way to make things right was to take control. But they disagreed on how to take control. So the Sadducees believed in taking control politically. The Pharisees believed in taking control morally, and the zealots believed in taking control violently. Now, I hope you see that 2,000 years later, things aren't much different. There's nothing new under the sun. This desire to make things right by taking control. Same broken world, same less than ideal circumstances, same attempts to take control and make things right. Now, this meeting between Paul and the Jewish ruling council got violent. It got violent. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune the roman commander afraid that paul would be torn to pieces by them why did it become violent because the resurrection of jesus christ was thrown into the middle of the meeting and the resurrection of jesus christ blows up any illusion of control that exists If Jesus Christ walked out of the grave, then you are not ultimately in control. The resurrection destroys this illusion of control. And what happens when you feel out of control? You may lose your temper. You may get angry at someone. You may lash out. This is what happens when you feel a loss of control, and that's what happened in this meeting. I mean, this meeting may look like some of your extended family gatherings when someone throws politics in the middle of the situation or throws opinions on morality and ethics and how things should, you know, that's the kind of stuff that creates tension. Everyone has their opinion on how things should be made better and who needs to take control and fix things, right? That's what creates fights and, in some cases, violence. If anyone in this passage should be blowing up at this point, if anyone in this passage should be losing control, it's Paul. He's been arrested. He's been tried unfairly. He's been misrepresented. If anyone has lost complete control on an appearance level, it's Paul. And yet what we see is he has this calm, although he did get upset at the high priest. I will acknowledge that. But he has this just confidence about him. Why? It's verse 11. The following night, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts, the facts about me, not your opinion about me, but the facts about me, Jesus said. In Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Courage does not come from circumstances. Nor does courage come from perceived control of circumstances. Circumstances and perceived control of circumstances actually produces cowardice. Because when circumstances are going right or you feel like you've got control of them, it's great. But when circumstances go south or you perceive you're losing control of those circumstances, then you either tuck tail and run or you lash out in anger, you lose your temper and do very uncourageous things to people. Courage comes from the power of the resurrected Christ. Christ. Jesus stood by Paul and spoke to Paul. And the word that he used here for courage is the same word that's used when he speaks to his disciples in John 16:33. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, "In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart." That's the same word for courage in Acts 23:11. Take heart, take courage. I have overcome the world. One of the great Christian leaders of the last century was John Stott. He was rector of All Souls Langham Place in London. He was a preacher. He was a Bible teacher. He was an evangelist. He was an author. Author Oz Guinness knew Stott well through the decades. They had a relationship of just colleagues and ministry and Oz Guinness recalls many decades with Stott, but he recalls the unforgettable experience of speaking to him and spending time with him three weeks before he died. And he says they spent hours talking about memories of life and, and ministry. And then Oz Guinness asked John Stott, How can I pray for you? And John Stott, lying weakly on his back, barely able to speak at this point, says in a hoarse whisper Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. Now that's courage in the midst of the ultimate circumstance that strips you of your perceived control, and that is death. Courage does not come from circumstances, good or bad. Courage does not come from the perceived control of circumstances. Courage comes from a person, Comes from the risen Christ. What situation in your life demands courage? What situation in your life demands courage? How are you seeking to find that courage through control or manipulation? Why aren't you trusting the risen Christ? Why aren't you resting in his control? Where does courage come from? It comes from the power of the resurrected Christ. But second, it comes from the promise of the resurrected Christ. We learn from Romans chapter one that Paul had deep desire, intention, and was planning on getting to Rome so he could preach the gospel in Rome. And yet we find in this story that that's not looking too likely at this point, Paul getting to Rome. I mean, he's just been in a heated argument with the Jewish ruling council. They've tried to tear him to pieces. He's been rescued by the Roman tribune, put in the barracks, but then he learns from his his, his nephew, very unlikely source, that there's a plot to assassinate him. All of this is is unfolding. And then once he gets rescued again, which we'll see by the, the Roman commander, and he gets transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea to be safe, then he spends two years in Caesarea in prison. These plans of going to Rome are falling apart before Paul's very eyes. At every turn, it becomes more and more unlikely that he'll never get to Rome. Paul's desire and his plans to go to Rome are being crushed. You ever been there? You have plans, you have desires for your life, and they get crushed before your very eyes. And yet we see that none of this deterred Paul. Oh, I'm sure he struggled with dark nights of the soul, but he wasn't deterred, why? Verse 11, Jesus stood by him. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In this great moment of potentially despair in Paul's life, certainly need, Jesus speaks a promise to him. And the promise is Paul, you're going to Rome. You are going to Rome. And yet, for the next two years, Paul would be in prison in Caesarea. But two years is a long time. Two years in prison. And yet it was this promise from Christ, this promise that Jesus gave him that carried him through those dark years of prison in Caesarea before he would eventually get to Rome. So Jesus gives him this promise. You're going to Rome. But then Jesus acts on the promise. He acts on the promise. Had the chief priests and the elders, the Jewish ruling council, had they gone to the Roman commander, the Roman tribune, and requested Paul to be brought back for further questioning, we just want to figure this case out. Had that happened, these Jewish zealots would have ambushed and assassinated Paul. Jesus acted on his promise he intervened in in a very unlikely way. We hear nothing about Paul's family in the New Testament except at this point, that he had a nephew. And this nephew was in Jerusalem, probably receiving an education just like his uncle Paul had done. Paul had received this education in Judaism under amazing rabbi teaching, and, and his nephew probably was doing something similar. Paul's family was wealthy and probably well-established and and, uh, well-known? Because Paul was a Pharisee. He was raised as a Pharisee, and so his family had influence. And that's why this nephew was probably in and around those circles to hear about the plan. There's a murder. There's an assassination attempt on Paul. So the nephew goes to the barracks and tells Paul, tells his uncle, there's a plot to kill you. So Paul uh, commands the soldier to take his nephew to the Roman tribune, the commander, to say what was gonna happen. And as soon as the Roman commander heard this, he once again stepped in to rescue Paul, quickly transported him from Jerusalem to a safer place in Caesarea. And it's there in Caesarea he would spend two years in prison. Courage doesn't come from safety. It doesn't come from success. Nor does it come from fruitfulness. If courage came from Paul's fruitfulness and success, it would have waned greatly his two years in prison in Caesarea. He was in a jail cell. Not very successful, not very fruitful. But that's not where courage Comes from. Courage comes from the promises of the resurrected Christ. So if that is true, that if Paul's courage for those dark years in prison came from the promise that Jesus gave him, then what are Jesus' promises to you that give you courage? Now, this is the million dollar question. Because if you get these promises wrong, you will set up to live a life of despair. Jesus gave Paul a circumstantial promise. He said, Paul, I know you can't see how it's going to happen, but you will get to Rome. But we're not Paul, nor are we apostles. The office of apostle has come to an end. Jesus doesn't give you circumstantial promises, He doesn't say, You're going to get this job or you're gonna to move to this city, or you're gonna get married, or you're gonna get healed of this cancer. Those are not the promises that Jesus gives you. That's God's sovereign will. And God doesn't reveal his sovereign will to anyone. That's why it's his sovereign will. You and I don't know what's gonna to happen tomorrow, nor the next day or a week from now or a year from now. That's God's sovereign will. He does reveal promises in his revealed will, which is his word. And those are promises that don't promise circumstances, but promises that help you deal with your circumstances. And there's two bedrock, bedrock promises that Christ gives. One is future, one is present. What's the future bedrock promise that comes from God's word, Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is, not that might, that maybe, that is to be revealed to us. As painful as your suffering is, the sheer joy and the sheer delight of glory with Jesus Christ is beyond what you can imagine. And it's that future promise that gives courage in the present, in the midst of your hardship and your sufferings and your tribulation. But there's a second bedrock promise that comes from Christ, from his word. And this is a present one. James chapter one. Verses two to four, count it all joy. Now this would be similar to take courage. Count it all joy, take courage, take heart. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking... In nothing. In suffering, in hardship, something that you want is being taken from you. Right? Something that you want or desire is being taken from you. And while that is true, The promise from God is that something far greater, far deeper, far more enduring is being given to you through suffering, through what is being taken from you. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That means that something is lacking in you. And the way that God gives you what is lacking is through hardship and through suffering. Something is being given to you and that something is the character of Jesus Christ, the likeness of Jesus Christ. His person, his character is being formed in you. You're being given something and that's so important because when suffering hits and hardship hits, all we can see is something's being taken and we forget, no, 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 something far greater is being given. Something far greater is being given and and the character of Christ is being formed in you and given to you so that you can carry out the works that God has planned in advance for you to do in your life. And that's why suffering is unique It's not general. You're not being prepared generally. You're being prepared uniquely. And that's why, in a room of this size, everyone's hardships and suffering look very different. Because God is giving you what you lack the character of Christ so that you can carry out his work. In your suffering, have you ever gotten to the end of your rope? Have you ever gotten to the place where you're just ready to quit? Throw in the towel? you ever gotten to the place where you don't have a fiber left in you to feel like you can wake up the next morning and put one foot in front of the other? And yet, that's the very place you meet Christ. Have you lost the will to fight for your struggling or your failing marriage? Is the desire waning to continue to sacrifice for a wayward child? Are you ready to give up, give in to your mental illness and just medicate the pain away? Are you absolutely tired of being single? Angry at God for not providing a mate and ready to just give yourself to someone so that it doesn't matter who it is so you can have a fleeting moment of being wanted and being desired. You ever come to the end of your rope? As hard as that place is, that's where you experience the sweetness of Christ's promises. The sweetness of his bedrock promises. In 1912, medical missionary Dr. William Leslie went to live and minister to tribal people in a remote corner of the Congo. He spent 17 years there in the jungle in a very remote place in the Congo. After 17 years, he came back to the United States, questioning whether he had had any significant, worthwhile impact for Christ in that place. Uh, He didn't have much success. Uh, There wasn't a lot of fruit to show for his 17 years. And yet, in 2010, a missionary team led by Eric Ramsey made a surprising discovery. They went to this remote jungle area in the Congo where Dr. Leslie had been stationed. And they found a network of reproducing churches in the area. There were eight churches in each of eight villages that were spread across 34 miles, there was a stone cathedral of sorts that sat a 1,000 people that as Dr. Ramsey, as they did their, their research, found that in the 80s, this 1,000-seat stone cathedral was packed that people would walk for miles to come to it, and it spawned a church-planting movement in the villages where people were coming from. Dr. Leslie had gone through the jungle and and through these villages for 17 years teaching the Bible. He set up an organized educational system, but he didn't see much success or fruit. Ramsey and others who have reflected on what transpired say that for 17 years, William Leslie fought tropical illnesses, charging buffaloes, armies of ants, and leopard-infested jungles to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into a remote area. Courage does not come from safety. It does not come from good circumstances. It does not come from success. Courage doesn't come from fruitfulness. It comes from the power and the promises of the risen Christ. So if you're at the end of your rope, if you've thrown in the towel, if you feel like you've got nothing left in your being to move on, then you're at a sweet place. Because it's in that place that you hear the risen Christ say, take courage. That his power and his promises give you the courage. And give you the power to press on. Let's pray. Father, we confess that so often we seek to find courage through our control, through our manipulation or we seek to find courage in our success or our fruitfulness or safety or good circumstances. And we confess that because we know that's not where courage comes from, Father. We believe that courage comes from your son, Jesus Christ, from his power, from his promises, not promises of circumstantial change, but promises that help us to deal with our circumstances courageously. Oh, Father, there are some in this room that are at the end of their rope. Waking up day to day, wondering if they have anything left to carry on. I pray that you would meet them in their brokenness. Meet them in their dark place. And by your spirit, speak the power and the promise of the risen Christ into their hearts that they could rise and leave from this place with great hope in the midst of their darkness and what they're facing and great courage. Jesus, you are the source of our courage. And as we sing to you now, would you fill us with your power and your promises? We pray this all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.